Hello, and congratulations for tuning in to another installment of Andy's Philosophy Corner with yours truly, Andy, at the microphone. We'd like to thank our parent organization, the Steel Plaza Podcast, for making all of this possible for you, dear listener. Let me also quickly mention other programming that can be found on the Steel Plaza podcast. It's the darkest corners of the world. Music from all over the... I'll bet you anything you haven't heard yet. You know, and the next time you're listening to some familiar song for the 50th or 55th time, um, you know, think back to when you were young and would like to discover new music. And that's precisely what you can do on the Darkest Corners of the World podcast. But this right here, right now, live before your naked steaming ears, I guess. Is that a thing? It's Andy's Philosophy Corner, and this installment, gearing up for the spring of 2023, is titled The Emperor's New Clothes or I, Libertine. The Emperor's New Clothes or I, Libertine, and so... The general theme we're going to be discussing this time around on Andy's Philosophy Corner <clears throat> basically is deception. And what is an appropriate response to deception? What do you do? How do you feel? How do you respond when you learn that you've been lied to? You know, it's a a rather famous expression of Mark Twain, I believe. Uh, correct the attribution if wrong. But Mark Twain pointed out that it is much easier to convince someone of a lie than it is to convince them that they have been lied to. Is this thing recording? Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's an important lesson we learn, that people cling to a lie. They become invested in a lie. They, they become too invested in it to really go back and make the necessary correction to what they consider as being true and untrue. So without much further ado, I am going to jump into the more mysterious half of this episode's title, which is I Libertine. Now, the first thing I think of is Ovaltine. Um, anyway, <laughs> I am just going to read off directly from Wikipedia what it has to say. It's a very good summary, although I will add my own emphasis after I've read what Wikipedia has to say about it. Here we go. <clears throat> I, Libertine is a historical fiction novel that began as a practical joke by late-night radio raconteur Gene Shepard, who aimed to lampoon the process of determining best-selling books. After generating substantial attention for a novel that did not actually exist... Shepard approved a 1956 edition of the book, written mainly 
by Theodore Sturgeon, which became an actual bestseller, with all profits donated to charity. Okay, so let's take a step back and think about what we just heard. I'll read on from, from Wikipedia before I get into that. Creation. Shepard was annoyed at the way bestseller lists were compiled in the mid-1950s. These lists were determined from sales figures and from the number of requests for new and upcoming books at bookstores. Shepard urged his listeners to enter bookstores and ask for a non-existent book. He fabricated the author, Frederick R. Ewing, of this imaginary novel, concocted a title, I Libertine, and outlined a basic plot for the listeners to use on bookstore clerks. Fans of the show took it further, planting references to the book and author so widely that demand for the book led to its inclusion on the New York Times bestseller list. And it wasn't just that list, dear listeners. Uh, I'll read one more section from Wikipedia, and then we'll shove off. Publication. Bookstores became interested in carrying Ewing's novel, which allegedly had been banned in Boston, when publisher Ian Ballantine, novelist Theodore Sturgeon, and Shepard met for lunch. Ballantine hired Sturgeon to write a novel based on Shepard's outline, Betty Ballantine completed the final chapter after Sturgeon fell asleep, exhausted, on the Ballantine's couch, having tried to meet the deadline in one marathon typing session. So, let's take a giant step back here in the spring of 2023 and think of what the United States and Europe was like back in the 1950s. And this story, Wikipedia buries the headline. Wikipedia buries the headline. The headline ought to be that people will easily, willingly, profusely lie. Because what happened here was all of these people started claiming to have read the book. All of these, there were conversations taking place throughout the entire country and throughout Europe about the book. Oh, yes, I've read that. I liked it. I didn't like it. There was a university where a student turned in a term paper on the author. What was the made up name again? Frederick R. Ewing. This kid writes a, a, a term paper on Frederick R. Ewing. And to go a step further, he includes lots of uh, reference, uh, references and uh, footnotes. Uh, the student gets a B plus on the paper, okay, from the, from the teacher, the professor, who grades his paper. Okay, and so many people were talking about it. There were very famous publicized authors writing about what they thought of it. Um, they even made up stories about having met the author, Frederick R. Ewing. 
just think for a moment about how many people lied about this, about having read it, about having seen it. Think about human nature and the willingness to go along with a lie, and in this case, in some attempt to appear intellectual and in some attempt to appear well-read. What does that tell us about human nature? Or at least from the eyes of disc jockey Gene Shepard, he could kind of sniff out this part of human nature, which is why he did this thing in the first place. And the whole run of this whole thing took about two months from the date of inception until the date it became public. And uh, let's say, I believe this all happened in 1955. What finally happened was a reporter from the Wall Street Journal, if my research is correct, eventually tracked it down. Eventually, I, I don't know how, but eventually tracked down Gene Shepard. And he, the two of them instantly had an understanding of the ramifications and the consequences and the implications also, but of what had taken place here. And in fact, Gene Shepard said, yeah, we got to pull the plug on this. We got to tell everybody the truth. Because sooner or later, the president of the United States is going to start telling people just how much he enjoyed this book. And then I won't believe in anything. So, so again, you can look at the whole tale of I Libertine as a joke, as a prank. I prefer to think of the story of I Libertine as a cautionary tale about just how eager humans or some aspects of human society or some need to feel included or in the know or in the inner circle or well-read this this overwhelming desire but there is a pretentiousness to that that gene shepherd quite easily <laughs> poked fun at he was an overnight dj in case you're wondering well how come more people didn't know about this or expose him well um perfectly good question um that could be a great subject for research, but as Gene Shepard put it, you know, walk into the bookstore, ask for it. They'll say there's no such book, and you leave. But later that day, later that week, another person, another person, week after week, keeps asking for this book. And it's your job to sell books. And so invariably, predictably, predictably what happens is they start calling their publisher who starts calling their distributor and suddenly exactly what well i'm not sure anyone could have really predicted how it went so let's not give gene shepherd too terribly much credit now this would be one example i would say of sabotage Gene Shepard, very simply, at no expense to himself, in fact, I, I suppose he got paid to do it when you really come down to it, as a DJ, um, what he did was sabotage 
and infrastructure a group, but it only affected those who couldn't tell the truth about it. And imagine, imagine what it must have been like in 1956. You have this friend, you have a group of people always yammering on about, I, Libertine. Oh, I've reread, I, Libertine. Imagine it. And then finally one day you see that person again who's been lying their butt off to you this entire time about this book. This happened. It was a bestseller all across the United States, all over Europe. This actually happened. And this is instructive about human nature and how some, some need to feel like you're in the elite, I suppose, if we had to try to uh, uh, narrow it down to a human uh, desire, this need for people to feel like, yes, I'm in the in crowd, willing to lie to each other's face and not even knowing they were lying to each other. Good God, I can't imagine having relationships like that. And I'm thankful for Gene Shepard for, for pointing this out. So, um, and it does segue me into a second uh, sort of subtopic along the lines of metaphysics. Because you see, using metaphysics, knowing how things operate, knowing how systems interface, and knowing enough about human nature, you can pull off a Gene Shepherd with the right circumstances and a little bit of luck, you can do that sort of thing. One second. All right, sorry, had to, had to kick off the fan, it makes noise. So, but what Gene Shepard did was he saw and took an opportunity which started as, as merely a joke merely a joke with his listeners, but because his listeners, which maybe amounted in the hundreds, um, perhaps over a thousand, but that's enough. That's all it took. That's all it took when one of his listeners happened to walk by a bookstore or two or three that day or that week and request the title, you know, and Gene Shepard instructed them, don't crack a smile. <laughs> don't let them know. <laughs> what we're up to and he said let's just sit back and let this happen you know this was and because it wasn't publicly known it was effectively sort of anonymous this campaign we'll call it this campaign because it was essentially anonymous it was able to succeed and that's really the magic in how one little guy, one little guy, can really get in uh, a good lick on if it's the establishment, if it's those for whom he wishes to um, systems and organizations and people and practices that you wish to counter. There is a sort of uh, asymmetrical anonymous sabotage that can be performed. But the key to it was, in the case of iLibertine, maybe I have a friend that works for the New York Times, right when this thing was brand new. Now, what I don't do 
is spread the word with the wrong people. And in fact, if you want such a campaign to be most effective, your, your asymmetrical warfare, as metaphysics would dictate, your asymmetrical warfare of anonymous sabotage, well, that's, that's guerrilla warfare, but in a metaphysical sense. It's in a metaphysical sense because these aren't physical systems per se that you're manipulating. What Gene Shepard did was he was able to find just a unique, clever way to expose all of these people for the stupid, lying sycophants that they were. All these people obsessed with lists. And that's what it was. Gene Shepard hated people obsessed with lists. And it's, I hope you'll take something from this that's, that's positive, which is why I'm saying this. Yes, woe, woe that human nature is quite so weak, ethically, morally, at times, and in large numbers. Woe is that. But, but, you're a guy like Gene Shepard. You can really reverse engineer the result you want. If the result he wanted was egg on their face, was embarrassment, was humiliation, which is pretty fitting for someone that walks around lying to everybody. Don't do that. Don't do that. On an interesting side note, I guess you can't do anything these days without mentioning chat GPT. I should have put that in the title. Ooh. This episode was written by ChatGPT. No, it wasn't. It was written by Chat A N D Y. Anyways, um, <clears throat> there's there's uh, something called Character AI, which I, apparently is based off of ChatGPT, and you can hit up um, all kinds of famous figures. And I was find myself chatting with Einstein, and he basically said everybody lies. And I'm like, uh, no, they don't. You know, you shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't sell people that short. So I kept talking to Einstein on this character AI, which I encourage you to check out. It's fun. And as we continued talking, I forget what Einstein said, but I called him a liar. And he said, well, that's not very to call me a liar. And I'm like, well, just a minute ago, you said everybody lies, and that includes you, so you are a liar. And he said, yeah, but that's not all I do. And I said, well, I ride a bicycle. You know, it's not all I do, but people can call me a biker. So... I don't know, this chat GPT stuff, like I said, it's spring of 2023. Uh, I don't know. Uh, stock up on <laughs> uh, 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 non-perishable food and water and uh, first aid kits and medicine. <laughs> I don't know, dude. Is it Skynet? Is Skynet coming for us? Um, if we had a comment section... I would ask you to put your comment in the comments section. So the hypothetical comment section would be, uh, how afraid do we need to be of ChatGPT and Skynet? And before we go any further, let me mention 
that you can get more, so much more of this programming, and you can show your support. Um, go to uh, paypal.me forward slash steel plaza podcast again the show isn't isn't super expensive but it's not free either your support means a lot and we really appreciate uh again that's www.paypal.me forward slash steel plaza podcast and we're going to call that as an end to end to segment one So stay tuned, dear listener. We will be right back to Andy's Philosophy Corner. All right, and we are back like we never left. Andy's Philosophy Corner. It's the spring of 2023. And what is happening right now is anybody's guess. Something I love is there is too much happening all at once for anyone to really have a handle on it. That's something I like. It's sort of a leveling the playing field sort of thing. And as a student of philosophy, that's our subject of epistemology. How do you know? And how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know is true or false? little deviation before we get into the emperor's new clothes here. Uh, it has recently, it's recently come to my attention that Boolean algebra, I'd always heard this, Boolean algebra was the way that, um, boy, I should tell you about this guy too. Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon was the guy who basically came up with a transistor. And everybody's going to say, no, no, no. But um, he was attributed. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about this genius a little bit. Because what he did was he used Boolean algebra to design circuits. And never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that these fields overlap. But, well, what do you know? Um, the short uh, uh, thumbnail on him, Claude Elwood Shannon, born April 30th, 1916, died February 24th, 2001, and he's still dead, was an American mathematician, electrical engineer, and cryptographer known as the father of information theory. Now, if you're into philosophy, you need to be familiar with epistemology. And if you're into epistemology, you should know who Claude Shannon is. As a 21-year-old master's degree student at MIT, he wrote his thesis demonstrating the electrical application of Boolean algebra could construct any logical numerical relationship. Shannon contributed to the field of cryptanalysis for national defense of the United States during World War II, including his fundamental work on co-working and secure telecommunications. Um, Without going too much further into Claude Shannon, um, he basically developed this type of digital signal. And as a true, just for the sense of being complete, he, he also included the limit to that. That is, there is a limit to how much signal can be pushed before you run into too much noise if that makes sense, the signal-to-noise ratio. 
he, I believe, introduced that almost at the same time as he introduced this theory, which is, to me, is very responsible. Hey, hey, get excited about this, but then, okay, well, there is a limit. You know, you can get excited, but there's a limit, too. Anyway, so Boolean algebra can be used to design circuits. Blew my mind. Anyways, so let's move right into the Emperor's New Clothes. It's a literary folk tale written by Danish author Hans Christian Andersen about a vain emperor who gets exposed before his subjects. The tale has been translated into over 100 languages. The Emperor's New Clothes was first published with The Little Mermaid in Copenhagen by C.A. Reitzel on April 7, 1837, as the third and final installment of Anderson's fairy tales told for children. The tale has been adapted to various media, and the story's title, the phrase, The Emperor Has No Clothes, and variations thereof have been adopted for use in numerous other works and as idioms. So hopefully, dear listener, you can already see some of the parallels well, I'll read the plot first, and then the parallel should be pretty evident between The Emperor's New Clothes and I, Libertine. So, here we go. Wikipedia, tell us the plot. <clears throat> Two swindlers arrive at the capital city of an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of state matters. Posing as weavers, they offer to supply him with magnificent clothes, that are invisible to those who are stupid or incompetent. The emperor hires them, and they set up looms and go to work. A succession of officials, and then the emperor himself, visit them to check their progress. Each sees that the looms are empty, but pretends otherwise to avoid being thought a fool. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. They mime dressing him, and he sets off in a procession before the whole city. The townsfolk uncomfortably go along with the pretense, not wanting to appear inept or stupid, until a child blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. The people then realize that everyone has been fooled. Although startled, the emperor continues the procession, walking more proudly than ever. <clears throat> so, again, if our subject is human nature and if epistemology is a consideration we're unable to avoid, what exactly got people to say that they had read I Libertine and what got people to say that they could see the emperor's new clothes. What did that? <clears throat> what is the metaphysics there? What is going on? And I think you can really boil it down to something quite as simple. Mm. I had to wet my whistle. Quite as simple as the carrot and the stick. The carrot and the stick. If you go along with it, 
you will have a carrot as an incentive and there will be a stick as a uh, disincentive and when everybody starts moving in that general direction you figure there's safety in numbers is that what we've got going on here does it take a small child to to point out that the emperor isn't wearing anything would it take a, a small child to say uh mommy i heard you talking about that book but i've never seen you read it would it take that to sort of pierce the veil there was an expression that uh came up in my research of I Libertine. The moment that it was first widely published undisputably that I Libertine didn't exist. Imagine that. Imagine. Imagine to be alive then. <laughs> if you're a regular guy that doesn't care about I Libertine and everybody can't shut up about it, then you find out they were tricked. Oh, that must have been delicious. Oh, that must have been wonderful. I'm jealous. Wish I could go back to that time. Anyway, um, an expression that Gene Shepard used when people finally made the realization. The expression was, the scales fell from their eyes. And what's great about the internet and content is, uh, you know, you can pause, you can time shift, you know. And I'd never heard that expression before. The scales fell from their eyes. And what that means is they finally had the epiphany. They had to rethink everything that they'd said and thought and heard about I Libertine. They had to throw it in reverse. You know, danger, severe tire damage when you back up. And that's what you got. You know, you had to throw it in reverse. You got severe tire damage. Anyway, that's uh, maybe not the world's top analogy. Hmm. So, again, with uh, I Libertine, the, the eventual, uh, it, it is a story about sabotaging A lousy aspect of human nature and making people think twice about trying to sound so darn smart trying to sound like you're on the in cloud in crowd <laughs> in cloud in cloud yes you can look us up in the cloud you can find the steel plaza podcast wherever uh, uh internet connected devices are found you can go to the steel plaza podcast you can check out the darkest corners of the world and andy's philosophy corner has been fortunate enough to do a few crossover episodes with the darkest corner of the world and it's been really fantastic we get to explore music and stuff um things i've absolutely never heard before and i'm i'm sure never would have and it's a healthy reminder to that all music was unknown to you at some point, and I continue people to seek out new music. You know, in the time of Bach and in the time of Salieri, you think Mozart didn't have an uphill struggle? Well, he's a little bit of a, an exception. Take more Beethoven, because Beethoven wasn't paraded in front of emperors when he was six. 
like Mozart. Beethoven was an unknown, you know, and trying to get his new music heard must have been incredibly daunting. Ah, we don't want your new music. We want the old popular music. Everybody knows it. Everybody likes it. They sing along. They dance. We don't want your new music. We got this good stuff right here. And I just encourage uh, listeners to tune in to the darkest corners of the world sometime. You will hear music you've never heard before. That's a guarantee. And sort of getting back to the mass fraud i mean for lack of a better word if it's the emperor's new clothes or if it's i libertine get a new lighter mm. if it's the emperor's new clothes or if it's i libertine this is a serious weakness that we have as a species just to lie about anything at all i mean why would you like i said i i i had a conversation with einstein's character ai who among his worldview seems to suggest that everybody lies and here's a good way you can get around lying because lying is bad nobody's perfect i've lied everybody's lied the point is you try really hard not to <laughs> I guess, you know, um, someone asks you a question and you don't want to tell them the truth. Well, you can just be vague. You can be ambiguous. You know, you can be evasive. You know, that's a lot kinder than lying, I think. Because people make plans based off of what you tell them. How many times have, you know, uh, hey, you said you'd take me to the airport yesterday. That really jammed me up. You said you'd do it and you did Hence, I missed my flight. You know, when people make plans for things, that counts as an investment, and they're invested in that. And then to remove that investment uh, is loss, frankly. So we've sort of danced around the subject of, of ethics with respect to I, Libertine, and with respect to the emperor's new clothes. So... Let's consider Gene Shepard. Did he do anything unethical, really? Well, knowingly asking for something that doesn't exist. I don't know if that's necessarily unethical. What's that dang noise? Okay, it went away. Um... What Gene Shepard did, go in and ask for a title that doesn't exist. Now, is that unethical? It's, you could say it's silly to ask for something that doesn't exist. But just, I'm going to guess a few hundred well-placed requests around New York City, or around the country, I suppose, because it was a nationally syndicated program. When Gene Shepard asks people to ask for a title that doesn't exist... What are the ethical implications? Here's a better question. The more you know about the potential outcomes of an action, does that affect the morality of your choice? And I'm going to wrap up the, the second segment here with a brief story. So our launching point is the more you know about the outcome, 
does that affect your morals and your ethics and the decisions you make? Here's the story. It's called uh, The Button, basically. A man approaches a woman and says, Ma'am, I have this box here and there's a button on it. Now, if you press this button, two things are going to happen. Someone's going to die and you're going to get a quarter of a million dollars. And she thinks about it. She says, well, I, I wouldn't want it to kill anybody I know. And the man says, no, 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 no. It's not going to kill anybody you know. It's going to kill somebody you don't know. And you're going to get a quarter of a million dollars. Just if you push that button, just push the button. And so she does. She pushes the button. She gets a quarter million dollars. When she arrives home and finds that her husband is dead and she's just received the quarter million dollars of his life insurance policy. So our, uh, um, our heroine seeks down the mysterious man with the box and says, you said it, it would kill somebody I didn't know. And the man at the box says, well, you didn't really know your husband, did you? <laughs> it's kind of a dark story, but you get the idea. Now, if the woman knew it would be her husband, obviously that changes her calculations. Of course not. She would not kill her husband. Well, I don't know. Maybe she would. <laughs> That's another story. Um, <laughs> um, but if you know the outcomes of your action... Does that change the, uh, the, the ethical calculus that goes into what you do? For example, uh, let's say you donate money to a charity and you feel good about it. Maybe sometime later you find out that the charity was using your money to do really rotten stuff. Okay, now your intentions were always good. But now, when that charity asks you for money again, what do you do this time? Do you assume that the charity is up to no good? That Do you assume that? Well, I believe you can only go by the history that you have. And you go into research. Has this charity actually done the good things it does? Is it merely enriching the employees and the board of directors? Because that's a very real possibility. Is that the so-called charity that you're donating to doesn't end up to the people that need it. And that's a shame. It's a shame because people take advantage of your willingness to help. Of your eagerness to assist. Of your sympathy for your fellow human being. And people just see that as, see you as an ATM. To give you a little guilt trip. Get a little money off you. It's impossible to say for sure, but it's 2023 and you can research this stuff. So I fully encourage charity, uh, giving of your money and of your time uh, to organizations doing good work. And just keeping in mind how prevalent... It is for society to be told, do your own research. It's 2023. You've got no excuse. And don't use Google. They're on the way out anyway. Um, one good search engine you can use is Brave, B-R-A-V-E. 
Another one is a site called Yandex, Y-A-N-D-E-X. I've used both of those and consistently. When I want to find out something that I know Google is banning, you can go to Brave Search or you can go to Yandex Search. You can also go to www.paypal.me forward slash steel plaza podcast and uh, support us that way. Thank you for your time, and we'll be back for the third block in just a little bit. All right, and welcome back to Andy's Philosophy Corner podcast. I think this is entering our third year of production, if I'm not mistaken, together in our uh, uh, great partnership with the Steel Plaza podcast. Listeners, check out new music by checking out the Darkest Corners of the World podcast, also available on the Steel Plaza podcast. So far, we've been talking about the Emperor's New Clothes, and I hopefully have introduced a few new people to the true story of I Libertine and what it means about human nature and what it really means for us in an information age when any one of us, you know, they didn't have the internet in 1955. They've got an excuse. It's 2023 and we've got no excuse. You know, if all you do is get your information from the TV and a major newspaper, I just think you're, you're really missing out. It's a big world. There's a lot of information, and it's not 1955 anymore. You can find things out for yourself. You've got no excuse. So, having said that, um, we talked about why do people go along with that? What was it? Well, there was a type of carrot and a stick to go along with it. You know, would you want to show up at your book club in 1955 to say, no, I haven't read I, Libertine. I can't find it anywhere. No one has it in stores. I haven't read it. I'm starting to wonder if it even exists. You know, I'm sure there were a few people, <laughs> honest people, who, in the conversations about this book, which, again, the whole thing took place over eight weeks, the whole uh, event, I guess we'll call it, the I, Libertine event, took place over, you know, about two months, about eight weeks, nine weeks. It's amazing. And it's a lesson we should not soon forget about human nature and the importance of thinking for yourself. So, now, this is exciting. We're going to play sort of philosophy roulette for the remainder of this podcast. And philosophy roulette means... I'm going to flip through my uh, philosophy notebook that I have, and I'm just going to uh, key off of stuff. You ready? All right, all right, all right. All right, uh, I wrote down, uh, uh, you know, think about who makes your smartphone. At first, when I got a smartphone, I, uh, I liked having an Android because I'd heard that iPhones were made by slaves. 
in China. And I thought, well, that's horrible. Uh, then you find out, uh, you know, it's, it may be how, uh, you know, all the, uh, Android stuff gets done too. You think that's awful. So as we march forward and feel all slick and futuristic, let's, let's never forget that right now on this planet, right now, we don't got to go back a thousand years. <laughs> Uh, to find slavery in this world. Um, so let's count our blessings and let's move forward with the idea that people are counting on us in one way or another, either by awareness or by sensitivity or uh, perspective. Uh, you know, I live in the United States and I've always felt like I got hit by the lucky stick, you know, in terms of where and when in history. I happen to live, and I'm just trying to make uh, the best use of my limited time. So, what else do we got here? Oh, ooh, ooh, this is nice. Um, I was dwelling on the idea, stay with me here, that uh, corruption is a function of size and time. Correction, corruption is a function of size and time. Now... By that, I mean, suppose you have something that starts small with perfectly good intentions. Um, suppose it does well. Now, when it does well, it takes on its own gravity and it begins to attract. And it doesn't just attract good things. It attracts bad things. Good things, bad things, all things. Being a center of gravity, it attracts. So your successful thing invariably is going to fall from that ideological grace. It will become, and if it's a local government, if it's a national government, um, if it's the United States women's gymnastics team, if it's the Penn State football program, or other organizations who've fallen from grace for horrible reasons, they all began with the best of intentions and they ended up becoming more or less the precise opposite of those good intentions. And the more I look, the more I see it in any organization that's been around too long and has grown too large. I just see the corruption. I think that corruption is has to be some function of time and size. So... That's not a really happy note, but it's something to keep in mind. Uh, to be skeptical, when something grows to be a certain size, it's a fairly safe assumption that it is at least a little bit corrupt, meaning that it's not gonna, it's not as it appears to be. So just word to the wise, uh, caveat emptor, which is Latin for buyer beware. You know, when you buy into stuff, that means something. It has to mean something. And don't just give away your belief in something. If you're going to stand behind something, make sure you know what you're standing behind. So, uh, let's see. What else we got here? <laughs> this bears repeating. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. This comes from Confucius. 
And I can't begin to emphasize, well, I can begin, I will begin to emphasize how important this is. A, a euphemism is a word that you use instead of something else, instead of the most obvious word choice. You say something else instead. Perfect example right here. It's 2001. I began working for a dot-com company that holds online auctions, specifically reverse auctions. Because what you can do is just publish the specification. Um, you know, you get together with the buyer, contract with the buyer. You gather together the specifications. And then you find suppliers. If you find three or four or a dozen suppliers of that thing and you're bidding on an annual contract, it's not that hard uh, to really think about. But here's the thing. They didn't call it auctions. Why? Well, they said, well, auctions have a negative connotation. Auctions have a negative connotation. Okay. Oh, oh, no, they said the word auction has a negative connotation. And I thought, it's not the word. <laughs> it's not the word. Because instead, these uh, the auctions were instead called competitive bidding opportunities, which is just a mouthful on top of it being something that they don't like. You know what I'm saying? Euphemisms are only a distraction to get to what you really are trying to get to. For example, uh, it used to be if you went into another country without permission, you know, you're an illegal alien. You know. But that's not the word we use anymore, is it? You say undocumented. Well, it is true to say that the person is undocumented, that is a true statement, but you're missing the point that the laws have been broken because our border has been breached. That's the point. So, so the use of euphemisms very often um, is meant to either uh, downplay or increase the seriousness and level of concern about this or that. You know, well, they're not illegal. They're undocumented. Okay. And that's a debate that people may have forever. But if we look to what Confucius tells us, the beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper name. Well, what's the point of making up new names for stuff? It's only to confuse. It's not helpful. It isn't, in my opinion. It only confuses things, and I think Confucius is on my side. Something else I'm going to rant about. Uh, more the basis for my personal philosophy is that human beings are my team, and so I th I, <laughs> I'm in favor of the quantity and quality of human life that exists. And that's pretty simple. It's not very easy to explain necessarily or explain how to implement that, but if you are working toward the quantity and quality of human life, you're on my team, and we pretty much agree. 
And I tend to think most people take that approach. You mourn when people get sick or you mourn when people pass. That's natural. Human beings, that's our team. That's your teammate over there who's sick or whatever, you know? And I got nothing against aardvarks or uh, uh, daddy long leg spiders or tuna fish, but my team is human beings, okay? So now if you favor the quantity and quality of human life on this planet, I've got bad news. Uh, the World Economic Forum disagrees. Uh, and one of these things that was a conspiracy theory just uh, five or ten years ago now is uh, uh, engrossed and shouted from the mountaintops that uh, there's a few billion too many people on this planet. I, I'm not making that up. This is your World Economic Forum. These are people with a lot of clout, you know? So let's, it's, it's one thing to be unaware in 1955 when you don't know any better and it's on a list. And it's one thing, it's another thing to say, yes, I've read I Libertine. So you choose to ignore these things at your own peril. Uh, what is being uh, publicized, widely publicized. But you're not going to hear about it on your TV. And you're not really going to read it in your newspaper other than to downplay it as concerning. I mean, when the world's wealthiest people want you gone, you... <laughs> uh, uh, well... That's the carrot and the stick, isn't it? You know, there's an incentive for just going along with it, just looking the other way, you know? There's a carrot, and there's also a stick. And when it comes to choices like a carrot and a stick, or just making choices in general, I've always believed that it's very, very important to feel like you're moving toward something you want, not just away from something or circumstances that you don't want. It's a very good, healthy feeling to have a path, have a goal, have an objective, and move toward it. And if you're stoic, whatever is in the way becomes the way. Now, sometimes you may have to flee from a situation. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But I think you quickly want to reorient yourself into a position where you're moving toward a situation, a circumstances, a location that you do want. Let's see. Have you heard of Arist Aristophanes? Maybe not lived from 446 to 386 BC. He was the son of Philippus, of the dame, to pick one with all the freaking hard to pronounce stuff, Kaidathenaeon, was a comic playwright or a comedy writer of ancient Athens and a poet of old Attic 
comedy. Eleven of his 40 plays survive virtually complete. These provide the most valuable examples of a genre of comic drama known as old comedy are used to def- and are used to define it, along with fragments from dozens of lost plays by Aristophanes and his contemporaries. So when we look at ancient Greek comedy, which we could use a little pick-me-up, let's face it, <laughs> times are tough. <laughs> Ancient Greek comedy was one of the final three principal dramatic forms in the theater of classical Greece, the others being tragedy and the satire play. Athenian comedy is conventionally divided into three periods, old comedy, middle comedy, and new comedy. Old comedy survives today largely in the form of the 11 surviving plays of Aristophanes. Middle comedy is largely lost, i.e. preserved only in relatively short fragments by authors such as Athanasius of Naucratus, and new comedy is known primarily from the substantial papyrus fragments of Menander. The philosopher Aristotle wrote in his Poetics, 335 BC, that comedy is a representation of laughable people and involves some kind of blunder or ugliness which does not cause pain or disaster. C.A. Trepanus wrote that comedy is the last of the great species of poetry Greece gave to the world. Make them laugh. And that is a take on, on philosophy is the absurdist. The absurdist philosophy, if you find yourself in a world where everyone around you is only tuned into 1955 era media, like newspapers and television, or maybe you are finding things out for yourself on search engines like Brave and Yandex. Takes two seconds. It's 2023. You've got no excuse for being uninformed or underinformed. Believe me, people will decide things for you if you do not. And having the ability to decide for yourself is really the only type of freedom there is. And I encourage you to exercise that freedom by performing your own research. And not only that, don't be afraid to be the little boy in the emperor's new clothes. Who doesn't know? Who doesn't understand the carrot? Doesn't understand the stick? He just knows he sees a naked dude <laughs> not wearing any clothes at all. Sometimes you got to be that guy. Say, uh, you keep talking about carrots and sticks. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't understand it. All I know is guy's naked. He could also lose a few pounds. <laughs> Let's face it, you don't see a lot of lean emperors. Anyways, or so maybe you're the little kid in the emperor's new clothes, or maybe you're a Gene Shepherd. Maybe you can pull off something like an I Libertine. You know, it doesn't have to be that huge a scale for it to be effective, for it to be fun. And if you'll notice that uh, it didn't cost a thing. And again, if you want to give a name to that type of strategy in the uh, ethics, you know, I'd say it's, uh, it's asymmetrical warfare and it's 
anonymous sabotage of the type of ugly behavior in human beings that we really have more of than we need. People just lying about stuff for fear of the carrot or for love of the carrots, for fear of the stick, or just because they're going along with the crowd. You can go along with the crowd. You won't be alone. But I encourage you to think for yourself and perform your own research. I think it's that important. So, well, look at the time. And let's see, let me pull my watch in. The time is, oh, it's time to go to www.paypal.me forward slash Steel Plaza podcast, where lucky you gets to quantify your love of this program, of Andy's Philosophy Corner, and also of the Steel Plaza podcast and the darkest corners of the world music program. It's 2023, my friends. It's a big world. We've, there's a lot of good work to do. Stay tuned. Thank you for tuning in and spending your time with me. I look forward to seeing you again in the next installment of Andy's Philosophy Corner. Take care.